0: We need the Lord every hour, every minute, every second, and thankfully he knows that and is upholding us by the word of his power. And tonight, like the song says, we are going to talk about the theme of unity. So if you've been around uh, for any length of time, been around me and my family, uh, you've probably heard me talk at one point or another about um, The Ongoing Saga, which is our basement. And you're thinking, uh, what? What do you mean? Uh, Well, it's been a great blessing to have a finished basement. So our family was expanding. We had a small little brick ranch. And we needed, you know, we needed more space, so we decided to renovate our basement. And uh, as great of a blessing as that's been, it's also been a great sanctifier for us. Um, Why is that? Well, because we've had several problems with water. Uh, several problems with water. Now, again, it was a dry basement when we finished it. Everything was great. And I know that most of you aren't homeowners, but one of our worst nightmares is water and water leaks. Okay? So much damage can happen from one tiny little leak. And, uh, and over the course of about three years, we have had several of those, uh, those leaks in our basement. <clears throat> and uh, in this particular instance tell you one of the stories. Uh, it all started one afternoon when I was, I think, grabbing something from the den in our basement, and I uh, had no socks on. Walking down there, and I uh, walked through the entryway, and then, you know, it's like, oh no. My heart sank, because this wasn't our first rodeo, and I was thinking, oh, where's this coming from? So, you know, if you've been in my basement, you know, it's kind of, at the, the den's kind of at the bottom of the steps, so I'm I'm scurrying around and, you know, running in the back back room and I'm turning off the water in the house and running back out and I'm looking at the dehumidifier because we've got a dehumidifier in our basement. If you don't know what that is, it collects moisture from the basement. Okay? Sometimes those can leak, uh, but no, no, it was dry. So I thought, oh, what's next? What could I, what could I check? And so I ran in the back and looked in our back closet where the air conditioning unit is and because that was the culprit two other times and, uh, and I was looking around there. It was, you know, bone dry. So then I ran into the washing machine across the hall, across the back, you know, thing to check that out. Is that, is that dry? Yes, it's dry. So I was like, where is this water coming from? And then I kind of standing in the hallway, scratching my head, and I looked across and up at the ceiling in our kid's playroom. And there it was. It was a dark line running across the ceiling. I thought, well, at least it's just in the ceiling and I followed it and it's down the wall. And I followed it down the wall under the base you know behind the baseboard under the under the subfloor. I thought, "Oh my goodness, this is this is everywhere." And it ran all the way through the through the room, all the way to the den and that that squishy part that I felt was just kind of one symptom of a of a much wider problem. So I thought, oh, okay, so at least it's coming from upstairs somewhere. And the kitchen is right above the playroom. So I thought it's coming from the kitchen. So I ran upstairs. And where would you think to check? The sink. That's where I checked. So I opened the thing. We you know, pulled out all our stuff that we have under the sink. And I'm looking around, dry. So I just I, I I raised the white flag. I was like, I don't know. I don't know where this thing's coming from. So we called the plumber. Um, he came in, you know, I had to admit defeat. So you all probably, where did it come from, right? Any guesses? Roof not the roof, not the dishwasher. The fridge, the water line running into the fridge. The plumber said, get this, the fridge must have gotten bumped. Imagine that with three kids. <laughs> and maybe the line, the, the little, pla- tiny little plastic water line, you know, Hit a shard, this is his literal words, hit a shard in the subfloor and maybe caused a leak. Because it was just a pinhole leak in this little water line. And all that damage in my basement came from one little pinhole leak. So, if you ever buy a home, just have these words ringing in your ears water is the enemy. Okay? Well, tonight, I know, it's a funny story, but tonight Paul is going to help us find another kind of pinhole leak, so to speak, spiritually. And in the passage we're going to study, Paul takes us to the source of the leak in this church. And so far in our study, we've seen the evidence of the damage, right? You know we've been studying Philippians. If you're new, you're probably like, where is he going with this story, right? We've been in Philippians. We've been studying through the book all year. And we're coming to chapter 4. And throughout this letter, we've seen what what I'm calling now the evidence of the leakage. Paul's writing this letter to address several problems. But one of them is this conflict in the church. Paul's called on this church to stop complaining and bickering against each other back in chapter 2 just flip back there and look at this chapter 2 verse 14 he says do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent so there was some apparently some grumbling and disputing happening and he just earlier in the chapter he called for a unified and humble mindset the very mindset that we've seen exemplified in Jesus and he's held out to this church examples Examples of selfless humility in Timothy, again at the end of chapter 2. And one of their own leaders named Epaphroditus, also at the end of chapter 2. And he's told them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And you can think of all of that as like the water damage, right? It's the water damage. It's, It's the evidence of the leakage. It's the wet ceilings in this letter. But tonight, he's going to reveal the pinhole leak that caused him to write all of that. And it's the relational conflict. It's the undealt-with offense between two individual women named Yodia and Syntyche. And you see, Paul knows that a lot of damage can happen in the church from something that on the surface looks like a really small thing. You know, a thoughtless comment that you just happen to take the wrong way pretty small, right? But if that pinhole leak isn't dealt with, if it continues to drip and drip and drip, what happens? Well, it turns into a mess in the church. And it's a mess that attracts the attention of the saints, and it gets our eyes off of Christ, and it gets our eyes more particularly off the mission of Christ. And so, this comment, this thoughtless comment is taken the wrong way, well, it gets replayed over and over in your mind. You begin to think the worst instead of thinking the best of the person who said it. You start imagining other things they might be saying about you behind your back. And then when you're around them, you're hyper-aware of everything they say and do. You grow suspicious of their motives. You're just trying to protect yourself after all, and that's what you say. You don't want to get hurt again. But before you know it, you're subtly putting them down around your friends. And somebody else says, oh, that person's really solid. You think, yeah, well, if they just knew them the way I do, they wouldn't think that at all. So you slowly start excluding that person from things you do, even though they used to be part of your friend group. When others comment on why they're not around much anymore, You put the blame on them. I don't know, they never never text me back. You see that small, little, hurtful comment way back in the beginning that was not fixed. And it turned into bitterness and then to resentment and then it became the lens that you look through and it colors everything you see. That pinhole leak has become a mess and we could just multiply so many examples of that in the church. Because guess what? We are all in progress, aren't we? You know what that means? It's the logical next step. If we're all not sinless, what's going to happen in the church? It leaks. (laughs) We're going to sin against each other. And so we have to know how to deal with that. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do in this situation here that he's writing about in in chapter 4. We're not sure of the particulars of the situation in Philippi, but we do know that something similar had taken place in that church. In our text tonight, Paul exposes the leak. He doesn't just expose, though. He gives the solution for how to handle it. So I'm calling tonight's message Handling Relational Conflict. And you could say, put a tagline on that, relational conflict in the church. Because it can and will happen. And his strategy here, as brief as it is, will yield a lot of insight for us, too, as we experience relational conflict in the church. And we will, because we're all in process. And I think the thing is, just to know as we're headed into this, that when we sin against each other, we obviously need a mechanism to deal with that sin. And God's given that to us in in the body, in the, in the scriptures, and how to practice those things. And in this text, we'll see, if nothing else, it will motivate us to deal with those small leaks in our lives when they happen, and to help others deal with the small leaks that happen in their lives so they don't turn into a church-wide mess and divert our attention from the mission of Christ and from evangelizing the lost and joyfully building up the saints. So, definitely needed so let's look at this text together, and then we'll talk through it. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 2, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. What's insightful here about Paul's strategy is that he first addresses the the conflict, or we might say the conflicting parties, Yodia and Syntyche, those individuals, and he tells them to address their own leak, you know. But then Paul's also realistic. He knows that sometimes the leaks turn into something that needs the help of a spiritual plumber, okay? So he turns and addresses another mature leader. And cause on that leader to help these ladies fix their problem. Okay, so it's really a two-pronged approach, and that's that's what we'll call it tonight. Uh, this two-pronged approach to handling relational conflict. And again, this is not this is not rocket science, but we're going to look look at some of the applications here, and I think it'll be helpful. We'll look at it from the vantage point of you know, reconciling yourself with another person, and then we'll also look at it from the vantage point of a peacemaker, being a peacemaker, being a leader that that can help facilitate this peace. So first, Paul calls for reconciliation of the feuding women. These women that are in conflict, he calls for them to be reconciled, or to, to think the same way. That's this first first prong of his approach. He calls for their reconciliation. So says in verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So Paul names these women explicitly. To my knowledge, the only time he does this in his letters where he's calling someone out, like a church member um, by name. He obviously names people in his letters, but I think this is one of the only places... I think I can think of other false teachers that he names, but this is the only place he names two, two church members. He calls on these women explicitly, and then he calls on them to reconcile. So let's go a little bit deeper and ask a few questions to help us get our minds around what's going on here in this text. Who were these people? Okay? Who were these women? Well, we know that they were women by their feminine names here. These are two feminine names, the feminine endings in the original language. So we know there were women. We're not just picking on women here. Uh, We know there were women, but we don't know that much else about them. Okay, They aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But in verse 3, we're told that they were involved in gospel ministry from the earliest days. We talked about this on Sunday morning, uh, kind of from a different angle. We're talking about evangelism. But notice he says when he's calling on this true companion to help these women... He describes the women. He says, Help these women who, here's their description, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with a man named Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers. So how does he describe these ladies? As ladies who have done gospel ministry. They've labored, they've worked hard, and they've done it side by side with Paul. So when when did that happen? What would have happened when Paul planted this church? It's described in Acts 16. Paul planted this church with his team, and he shared the gospel. People were converted. Lydia was the first convert, but others followed. And apparently, there was a, the, the gospel had receptivity amongst a group of women first. And it was likely, we don't know this, but it's likely that Yodi and Syntyche were part of that group. Because they were with Paul, converted early in this mission, and really with him from the beginning, mixing it up in Philippi, sharing the gospel. So very long, I mean these are long term members. Again, this church has been around for about ten years at this point, by the time of Paul's writing. So these are likely long term charter members of the church. Two front ladies two frontline ladies. Two, or we could say leading female evangelists. Evangelists who were fruitful, especially among the women in those early days. So if you would have looked like it's the social world here, they would have had social networks with other women, um, both economically and in the family, and it's very likely that they were very connected and were kind of on the front lines in evangelization of women. This is not, you know, there would not have been women standing on the street corner preaching in Paul's day. That, just, that would just not have happened. This is more covert evangelism happening kind of under the radar. Um, so they served likely, they mentioned, you know, he mentions here this other man named Clement. This is likely a church leader. So they served together with him. He's kind of like their, their ministry leader. And then the rest of my fellow workers, probably the team that Paul had with him in the beginning when he went there. Guys like Silas and Timothy, and, and we'll see Luke. Um, people like that on the team. So in other words, these ladies, his point is these ladies are, are kind of front lines, evangelists here in the city of Philippi. And so that's who they, who they were. That's about the best we can know, but that's, that's going to be important info when it comes to this next question. What was the issue? Okay, What was going on? What was happening amongst these women? Now again, Paul doesn't give us very much to go off of here in this, these verses. So let me give you a caveat. We've got to be careful with what I'm about to do. Okay, I'm about to do something called mirror reading. So what that means is you kind of read the letter with kind of an eye to maybe what was going on in the background of this this letter. And we've got to be careful because you can easily overread something into the white spaces, so to speak, in in the background of what's going on here. But I think we can put together a, a pretty compelling background to probably what happened here. We know for certain that there was a lot of selfish ambition, conceit, envy, and jealousy that Paul was warning against in this church. Okay? A lot of selfish ambition, a lot of pride, a lot of conceit, some envy, jealousy, and you see that over in chapter 2, verse 3. When he's warning this church to not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit and, and things like that. Chapter 2, verse 3. So we know, kind of at a baseline, that there was some, there was some pride festering in this church and probably some envy. Now, because of that envy, in the same flow of context here in chapter 2, they were tempted, in this pride, they were tempted to grumble and complain against each other. That's the idea. It's not just grumbling in general, but in, in chapter 2, verse 14, he tells them to do all things without grumbling or disputing, meaning infighting. That, that second word kind of t- uh, dials us in on what the issue was. They're not just grumbling like, ah, man, I stumped my toe and I don't like that. It they're grumbling against each other in, in the church. Again, not told why, not told what's going on, but we just know that there's some grumbling happening. Chapter 2, verse 14. And now if we, if we kind of tighten the focus a little bit, you know, if like you're a photographer and you're kind of tightening the lens down to bring it into focus, I think there's probably, it's we would say, ministry envy. And ministry envy related to evangelism. Now again, we're getting a little more hypothetical here, but why am I saying that? Well, when you think about other details that Paul has included in this letter, it makes sense. So, if you go all the way back to chapter one, you remember that Paul, in his he's explaining his 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 context and ministry, how he's how he's imprisoned, and that he talks about these rightly motivated evangelists and these wrongly motivated evangelists in Rome, in where he's in prison. Remember that? He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Interesting. That's one of those words is what he dismisses over here. He says, don't do anything from that, over in chapter 2. But he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, that means the envious group, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he's he's highlighting this detail about wrongly motivated evangelists in Rome, and then he's also highlighting his own response to that wrongly motivated evangelism. And he's saying, I don't care who gets the credit. I don't care if it's me in prison or them. I'm going to rejoice that the gospel is spreading. That is a powerful, subtle rebuke to two ladies who may have been fighting over ministry fruit. Arguing about, kind of boasting about who who was the most significant evangelist. It would also explain why Paul highlights the selfless and sacrificial character of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So remember, he, he lists these guys as examples to this church. And he highlights that Timothy doesn't care about his own interests. He cares about Christ only. And how he's served faithfully in gospel ministry by caring for others' interests, being humble... And he highlights Epaphroditus in the same way that he's, he risked his life. He didn't, he didn't consider his life of value. He risked it to meet Paul's needs. So the point is just he's highlighting these men. And I think that probably had a bearing on the issues at hand, the most relevant issues at hand. Now, again, if we're thinking about what, what is, what's actually going on here, what, the nature of this conflict, well, if you think, okay, it may have started small, but at this point it was not insignificant. It was not an insignificant issue. It's probably escalated to the point that others have now gotten involved. Others in the church, they've taken sides. Because again, these are two leading women. These are two charter members. And if you think, okay, how do, how do you know it's escalated? Well, just think, think through it. Okay, Think about all that Paul is sacrificing to deal with this issue. Paul's in prison, and he needs people around him to care for his needs. And what's he doing? He's sending Epaphroditus back to them, because they need him more. And then he's saying, I'm even going to send Timothy back to you. And then when I get released, I'm going to come back to you too. That's significant, because he was planning to go to Spain to do foundational gospel ministry in Spain. He was hoping to go to Rome so the Roman church would support him in Spain. But he's saying, when I'm released, I'm coming back to you guys. Because I care about you and I want to see this put right. He took the time to write them a letter, which would have taken not only just time, but also money. This isn't the day of emails or texts. This is the day of parchment and carrying letters across the Roman Empire. Think about this, too. He names these two ladies. And that's very direct. And it runs the risk of embarrassment and shame. So it's almost like he's got to get their attention. As we're going to see in a minute, he had gotten to the point that he calls on a third party to help these two people reconcile. Which, again, if you think about Matthew 18, it starts just with the two individuals, right? As they come together. Keep it between you two. And then if they can't reconcile, then, or if they can't deal with the issue, then it goes beyond just the two individuals. So in Paul's mind, I think, it's kind of gone beyond that. So it may have started small, but it's a bigger deal now. And yet, it's not Corinth status, meaning the letter to the Corinthians, right? It's not, it hasn't arrived at that status yet. Because if you kind of compare the tones of those two letters, the tone of this letter is joyful, he regularly affirms them. He's praising them. The letter opens and closes with this radical, generous gift that they gave him. So all was not lost in this church. This just helps us to kind of balance the issue and say we shouldn't overplay what's going on here. It's not definitely not a doctrinal or heretical issue at all, or he would have hit that head on. So instead, I think it's safe to say this was a relational issue, an issue of pride, Some misunderstanding that's that's grown up it's gone unchecked and now it's causing disputes in the congregation so I think that's that's probably what was going on here the best we can tell and I want you to notice just a few more details here do you notice how Paul addresses these folks he says I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. now that probably doesn't stand out to you guys, but it stands out to me uh, because Paul rarely, he's economical when he writes, so he rarely repeats the main verb again. So it's almost the, the he, but he does it here. So the idea is like, he's like looking at one of them and he addresses them individually. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. You know, he's just like repeating, but like, look, you and you figure it out, you know, that's, that's sort of the goal. He's addressing them impartially, and he's addressing them together. And so what's his goal here? He says, I want you, both of you, Yodi and Syntyche, I am treat you to agree in the Lord, is the way the ESV translates this. Paul's goal, what's, what's so helpful about this, is that he aims high. He doesn't get caught in the fray. He's not, he knows he's not there, he can't adjudicate the particulars, but he's saying, hey... Let's, let's aim high. Let's aim for unity. That's, that's the goal. That's what he's saying. Unity, and that happens through reconciliation. And if you widen out in the context, it's for the mission. Okay? So that's his goal at a very high level. It's unity. That's what he calls them to here. And this unity has to happen through reconciliation, through coming together and forgiving each other. And it's got this end goal of fueling the mission in Philippi, getting these two evangelists to stop griping and getting their eyes off each other back onto the unbelievers that they can be evangelizing. So this call for unity, where am I getting that? Well, the, the NASB translates this as live in harmony in the Lord. Okay? If you have a New American Standard, it says live in harmony. The ESV says agree in the Lord. And literally, it's, he's calling them, he's saying, I entreat you, I exhort you To think the same in the Lord. To think the same in the Lord. It's a call for unity. Now, if you've heard that, if if that rings a bell, that's because you've heard it before. He he called the church to do this very thing over in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, look, if you've experienced any of these benefits in Christ, verse 1, complete my joy, verse 2, by being of, here it is, the same mind of being unified. He's calling them to adopt the very same mindset, the same attitudes of their Lord Jesus that he's going to go on to describe in chapter 2, which was an attitude of what? Radical humility. Radical humility. So he's saying, hey, humble yourselves, be unified. But how does this unity happen when the two parties are not unified? Well, that implies something else has to happen, right? Which is forgiveness and reconciliation. That's got to happen if we're going to get unity when two parties have been hurt. There's been a hurt, obviously. Probably been lots of hurts, actually, between these two ladies. And instead of dealing with them biblically, they let them go and they festered. And so Paul addresses them both and says, whatever the issue is, I want you to humble yourselves and pursue each other and forgive each other and reconcile. In short, think the same, right? Be unified. But notice that he says, I want you to, to think the same in the Lord. You see that? Think the same in the Lord. Meaning, you could take that phrase a number of ways, but I think if you just step back, what he's, he's appealing to the unity that they've already experienced by being in union with Christ. They're in the Lord already. And he's saying, I want you to adopt this same mindset because you're in the Lord, because you're together. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But as Christians, we don't have an option to stay irreconciled. It's not an option. Like Christ has already accomplished our unity. It's up to us to maintain it, to keep it up, to keep it fresh. So we don't have the option. And in fact, if we are unwilling to reconcile, if we're unwilling to deal with sin in our, in our relationships, and that's the pattern of our life, that reveals we have never experienced the reconciling power of Christ. That's scary stuff. It's sobering stuff. But stuff to think through and think about. So, in light of this, let's take a step back and really think, think through what it takes to pursue something like this When we've been hurt here in the church. If somebody's hurt you, or you're in conflict with another member in Boundless, let's say, what are the steps to reconciliation? Now, it's dangerous to even do this because uh, there's such a need for kind of case-by-case advice. Does that make sense? So whenever there's two people that are offended at each other, there's a lot of commonalities, but lots of times you kind of want to know the particulars of of what's going on. But let me give you some of the high-level, sure it'll raise more questions, but that'll be great, um, high-level advice, biblical biblical, uh, advice I'd give you. First, I would start with renewing your mind. Renew your mind. Because when you're when you're sinned against, it's amazing because all of this, all of these emotions and deceived ways of thinking, all that stuff just, just like floods in. Okay? So you have to start by renewing our minds. And I just I wrote down Romans twelve, one and two on that because that's the command, the general command for us to do this work of mind renewal. But we gotta get particular when it comes to the offenses. So here's some examples of things that you might use to renew your mind. You want to think through things like this. No matter how great the sin is against me, it is a small thing compared to my sin against Christ. And Christ forgave me. So I can almost guarantee you that's not the first thing you're going to think about whenever you're sinned against and somebody else has offended you. But the first thing you need to do no matter how great it is, how much of a sting, is remember that my sin against Christ eclipses anything that anybody's ever done to me. And He has lavishly forgiven that sin. He tells a parable, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18, along those very lines where the, one guy's forgiven an incalculable debt the king, and, and then he turns around and wants choking the other guy out for like five bucks. You know, who doesn't forget who you know owes him five bucks. The king hears about it. The king is livid that this guy would be so hypocritical. So that's the idea. And he tells that story to motivate us to forgive one another. That, hey, we, we've got to understand. So if we struggle to forgive, you could say it backwards. If we struggle to forgive, that means we've got to do some heart work it means we think of our sin very small. When in reality, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were idolaters. And the Lord slaughtered his own son to reconcile us to God. He spared no expense. He paid the ultimate price. If you're, if you're wondering about how significant your sin is, it took the slaughter of God himself to atone for it. And it, it solicits eternal punishment forever in hell for those who will not avail themselves of that sacrificial atonement. So your, our sin, you've got to remember this, our sin is great. And Christ's mercy is greater. <laughs> and he has loved us with an incalculable love and given us an, an incalculable forgiveness that we will praise Him for forever. So we've got to start with renewing our minds here uh, on this issue. And then I think there's some other things you could think about. I mean, we could literally preach several messages just on this, okay? But Christ died to accomplish my unity with this believer, and He calls on me to maintain it. Okay, so I'm I'm not creating unity. Christ has already created that, according to Ephesians 2. And He created it with His blood. He paid for it to reconcile us together to God. And so, somebody's sinning against me, I'm already reconciled to them, and now I've got to do all I can to maintain that unity. That's what he calls us to in, in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians. We've got to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. So we've got to start with renewing our mind there and, and fighting that, that that you know this is this is not something inconsequential that we can just brush off. Right? I think that's the lie that we're tempted to believe. Well, that just this doesn't matter, you know. No, it does matter. And we're called to maintain unity. And then finally, you know, you're thinking, oh, I don't want to have that conversation because it's the worst thing ever. But this is actually an opportunity for Christ, or from Christ, for eternal fruit. We think, oh, this is terrible. They might respond poorly. Well, what else? If they respond poorly, guess what? You get to learn to be more patient. You know? That's a good thing, right? If they expose you, and you realize, oh, they sinned against me, but I've actually been sinning against them for a long time, you know? Great! That's good. The exposure of you is great. That's wonderful because you get to repent and become more like Christ. Whatever we may be afraid of, these are all opportunities from Christ for eternal fruit. And I just threw one text on there where James talks about how even our trials, and when people sin against you, that's a trial. People, even our trials are from God, and we should count them as joy because of what God is producing in us through those, those trials. So it starts by renewing your mind. It doesn't start by getting offended and leaving the church. Okay? i throw that out there. It starts with renewing your mind. And then it starts with considering if you can overlook it in love. Can I overlook this sin against me in love? Can I just cover this sin in the love of Christ? I listed some Proverbs there, but one of my favorites is Proverbs 19.11, and it says it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. It's It's a noble and glorious thing for someone to be mature enough to not have to point out every time someone sins against them. Right? So I think people hear some of these things and they sometimes ex- react to an extreme in thinking, you know, we see this a lot in like young marriages. Look, like, I got I got to point out everything, you know, because I got to speak truth in love, and it's like no. You need to overlook a lot in love as well, right? Um, and these proverbs in First Peter, and they all call us to that. But that raises a question, right? So like when, when is it right then? What what should I do? Should I overlook it or should I? actually address it. Well here's some here's some questions that could kind of help you filter that out. Is it a pattern in the life of the person that is has sinned against you? So if I come home and I've just had a you know terrible day and lots of things that go, you know, the way I planned and it was really tough and I'm just I'm I'm complaining to my wife and kids at home. Mary might look at that, and she might say, that's an isolated situation. This is not normal. He doesn't normally do this. So so I'm just going to empathize and just try to draw him out and just seek to encourage him and pray with him, whatever. But if I'm coming home every day and I'm griping about the same thing or the same kinds of situations or I'm consistently griping, then yeah, that's a pattern, right? And it's time to address it. So is it a pattern? It's first thought. Or is it damaging to your relationship with them? Right? Is it damaging to your relationship with them? So, maybe it's not a pattern, but maybe it's something that that was really hurtful to you, that someone said. And now when you come into the church, you see that person from across the room, and it's like, that's what you think of. It's like, ah. It's kind of your... You start feeling the heat, you know, coming up. Or you get that pit in your stomach of, like, nerves and nervousness and your armpits start sweating and all those good things, right? Hypothetically. Is it damaging the relationship? I would say then at that point, yes, it's damaging the relationship. You know, it's it's a big enough thing that it's, you can't, every time you're with them, it's just, it's very difficult for you to relate to them in the same kind of way as you did before. Is it damaging to others? Or is it harmful to the offender, meaning the person that sinned against you? You could say, well, all of sin is harmful to the person. Sin-. We're talking like immediate. Like, is there is there some immediate harm that's going to take place, or is it damaging to others in the body? Is it, is it some kind of gossip that needs to be stopped immediately? You know, is it some kind of self-harm that's about to take place? You, you just... We don't have to give multiple examples, but you get, you get the idea. Is this damaging to others? Is, there, is it a threat to other people, or is it a harm to the offender themselves? So then you want to kind of come in uh, more quickly there. You wouldn't, in other words, you wouldn't want to overlook it in love if it's going to be damaging in some way. All right, I'm sure that raises more questions. I'm sure there's more categories here that we can think about, but I'm just trying to give, give you some to help you navigate when should I overlook in love I think the majority of our interactions, we should be overlooking things in love. Um, again, unless it's fitting one of these one of these categories. All right, so let's say it, it is fitting in one of those categories. So, and you're offended, let's just say, relationally, because that's kind of where most of it is, is that somebody said something and it, they're hurt now. So how do you think through that? Well, now you're renewing your mind. You're saying, okay, I, I really think I gotta address this because it's damaging the relationship. I would say the next step would be lead by communicating your love for that person and your desire for restoration. Meaning you're not coming in guns a blazing with accusations. Okay, you're coming in saying, "Hey, I love you. I I there's something between us. I want to kind of get to the bottom of that, you know. I want to be restored." I want unity and I I feel it may may be all on me, you know, but I, I want to be unified and lead with that love. That will grease the skids, okay, in relational conflict. I love you and I want to be I want to be restored. And then own your part in the conflict honestly, in honest confession. Meaning, again, you're coming in, and beforehand you've thought about maybe ways that you contributed to the problem with whatever it is. Maybe you've been snappy yourself, and you're realizing, man, I've, I've really been a jerk, you know, as I've kind of thought through this friendship. And the fact that they said that about me, you know, is probably I, I probably provoked them, you know. So what are you doing right there? You're you're doing Matthew 7, 5. You're getting the log out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. You're dealing with your own sin first. We always want to ask that question. Have I contributed to this conflict in any way? And I want to own that. I don't want to make any excuses for what I've done. Shift blame. I don't want to do any of that. But I want to, to own it and then seek their forgiveness. I'm going to start there. Okay, that's Matthew 7, 5, getting the log out of your eye. And then, in the interaction, you want to speak graciously, but clearly and honestly about the offense. Meaning, you don't want to sugarcoat it, or, or say something insincerely to try to like lessen the blow. Like, if you're hurt, you're hurt, and you need to be honest about that. And again, I didn't, I didn't write this in here, but you're, you're going to want to ask a lot of questions too. You can kind of lump that into speaking graciously. The graciously part is, is you want to seek to understand if they said something about you or to you that hurt you, like, why did you say that? What, what was your intent? And then, do I have this in here? I don't know. I don't. But here, we add this into this point as well. <laughs> when you ask them questions and they give you an answer, you have to believe them. You have to believe the best. You can't assume motives. You're not God. You have to believe them. That's what believing the best means. That's what love does. It believes the best. Speak honestly about the offense, but graciously ask questions. Listen to their answers. Seek to understand. But be honest about the offense. And so Matthew eighteen fifteen, I think I wrote that down there. Says, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. Jesus instructs the church um, to do that if you've been sinned against. <clears throat> and then, once you've kind of gotten to the bottom of things, then you, you yeah, I said that actually. Sorry, I didn't have my I didn't have my notes. I um, was a little under the gun when I was putting my PowerPoint together, so. Listen to their response and assume the best of motives. All right. And then seven, freely extend forgiveness. Freely extend forgiveness. And we've got a whole message that we preach from Ephesians 4 on that. Uh, it's on the website. That If you want to look into that, I've got an article that I kind of wrote, put together on that um, that gets into forgiveness in depth. I would definitely recommend that. If you want to think that's on the website. Is that on the website? Yeah, okay. It is on the website. The Boundless page. It's in a PDF. You can download it. So I'll just say that there. You want to freely extend forgiveness, which is a... It's a choice. Okay? Forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. So if I go to the bank and I'm in debt to the bank and the bank chooses to forgive me, they cancel my debt, the bank can't come back to me and call me on the debt because it's done. It's a volitional choice that was made. We signed it, it was over, it's done. So how you feel doesn't matter the next day. You chose to forgive them. So it's forgiven, right? That's very helpful. That's very helpful. And so then you need to, after you've forgiven, treat them as forgiven moving, moving forward. Meaning you're not trying to get your pound of flesh, okay? You're not trying to, you know, be chilly toward them. You're not trying to, you know, keep excluding them for things or, or, or give all the non-verbals that make them question whether you, you care for them or not. None of you ever do that, Right? So you've got to treat them as forgiven moving forward. And so here's a summary really of of the kind of attitude here that one of our, our, our guys on staff, Mark Hager, says all the time, and I think it's just so helpful. He says, We at all times in the body, a Christian needs to be ready to repent and ready to forgive. At all times. Ready to repent. Hold that in one hand, and then ready to forgive in the other hand. And if, if, you can, if you can master those two things, and that's the attitude of your heart, just saying, like, I know I'm a sinner. I know it's going to leak out. So if I hurt somebody, like, please tell me. Like, I, I want to repent. I want to make it right. Humble myself. Own it. Yeah. Please forgive me. And then on the flip side, ready to lavishly forgive we can get those two things right man unity will happen in the body and will continue to grow okay so there's a danger here of letting something fester and it turns into bitterness or resentment so if you if you let something go and you try to like just bury it and you don't deal with it you're not you're actually doing a a further harm you're you're planting the seed, so to speak, and it's going to grow up into bitterness and resentment. And that bitterness colors everything. It's like glasses you wear, and that you see everything through that embittered spirit. And it's going to spill out on all kinds of other things. It's going to spill out in gossip. It's going to spill out in slander. It's going to spill out in self-justification. And apparently that situation had happened in Philippi, and it was on the verge of escalating. How do we know that? Because Paul doesn't just stop at telling them to reconcile, he gets another mature believer involved. And that's Paul's second prong here is he he calls for help from the leading peacemaker in this congregation. We'll go much more quickly through this one. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, verse 3, to help these women. Okay, so who is this guy? He calls him true companion. Well, we don't know who he was, <laughs> but we know it was a man, again, because it was masculine in the Greek text. He was a leader at some level by the title Paul gives him. <clears throat> this true companion, this loyal fellow worker would be another way to say that true companion idea. Loyal fellow worker. And probably the two most likely options, it could be Epaphroditus, okay, the guy who he's sending back. And you could do that. He could write about that. And then, you know, as he's explaining the letter, it's like, yeah, he's talking about me. I need to help you guys reconcile. But most likely, that's a little bit awkward, uh, you know, because he's like writing it about Epaphroditus, whom he's sending the letter back with. I think he's probably talking about Luke. If I had to guess, I mean, my best guess is, is Luke, because he was Paul's travel companion. He was there when the church was planted. He probably came back to that church, and he was one of the stabilizing influences there. And so, Everybody would have known who this guy was, because he's not named. And not named explicitly. So this would have been the most likely figure there at that that church. But it doesn't matter. The point is, he's one of the mature believers, and likely he's part of the leadership team in Philippi. So in Paul's mind, the person he calls on for, for a ministry of reconciliation is someone who is loyal and true, meaning he's mature, and He's a fellow worker in ministry. So I think there's some, an implication here to, to draw from this. Well, I'm going to encourage you guys to be peacemakers and to pursue that. I think you need to recognize at the stage of life like some of the limitations. Being a peacemaker, there's a lot of, there's a lot of what are we going to say? Uh, pitfalls, uh, a lot of temptations within trying to do this work of, of peacemaking. It's kind of like in Galatians 6:1 when Paul calls on the spiritual, to do the ministry of restoring, like when they restore a brother, they see a brother in sin and he's erring, and it's the spiritual person, the person who knows how to walk by the Spirit, who's evidencing maturity in their relationship with the Spirit, to know how to help that person out of that ensnarement into a life of fruitfulness. So I think the same thing happens here when we're talking about conflict in between two people. It doesn't have to be a pastor or a church leader, but it needs to be somebody who is on the mature end of the spectrum to lead through, some, some, at least in this case, some pretty complex relational dynamics here between Yodia and Syntyche. So even though Paul was high level, right, he was like exhorting them to unity and reconciliation, he also knows there needs to be a local leader to get involved to help them with the particulars of this complex ministry. So what's he calling on this leader to do? He's calling on the leader to help these women. Help them do what? Help them reconcile. Help them do what Paul has called them to do. Right, And so this is the, the, I'm calling it here, the peacemaker. It's the peacemaking ministry that's talked about in Matthew 5, 9, where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Because God Himself is a peacemaker, isn't He? He made peace by His Son. He sent His Son and reconciled us to Himself through His Son. And so when we bend that forward, when we have that same attitude of making peace in the body, we are, we prove ourselves to be, Sons of God, Matthew five nine, and really, if you're thinking, what does this activity look like? Well, Paul's actually modeling it here in this letter. He's modeling what peacemaking involves as he calls out this issue. So, even if you're not a leader of the church, you're likely going to find yourself in situations in your friend groups and your families where peace is needed, and we can learn a lot from Paul's example here. Okay, so notice his strategy. We could say it like this: Paul's peacemaking strategy is laced with love. It's laced with love. We didn't read this verse, but heading into this verse, this verse 1 of chapter 4 is actually the conclusion of the paragraph preceding it, but it's also sort of springing us forward into this very direct call-out of Eodian syndicate. And notice what he says. Therefore, my beloved, my, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, He's laying it on. That's like one of his most affirming statements in all of his letters. Right there. And the next thing he does is call out two women and tells them to get along. So what's the point? What he wants ringing in their ears as this this exhortation is coming is the fact that he loves them. And in peacemaking, that's got to be our motive. It can't be Frustration. Right? That like, can't these two bickering ladies just get along? He's not upset. And he's not upset that he had to send two of his workers back to them to help them. He's not even irritated that he had to rework his plans. Once he's finally free, (laughs) he can't go to Spain like he wanted to go, and he's got to go back to Philippi, right? You don't hear any of that. You hear, my joy, my crown. It's tempting to be frustrated by the immaturities of others, because they can massively inconvenience us. But Paul, if we want to be peacemakers, we have to be motivated by the love of God in Christ to see this reconciliation happen, no matter what it costs us. All right, that's why a mature believer is most suited to do this. It's laced with love. It does not take sides. His strategy is doesn't doesn't fall prey to that. Okay, easy to do when you're trying to peace. You know, make peace, especially that first person that comes to you and they're just. Bleeding their heart out about what happened to them. Can you believe it? You know, it's like, ooh. You know, you start to listen to them. You kind of get wrapped up. and You're like, yeah, let's go get them. You know, let's go. I'll, I'll confront them with you. You know, it's very unwise. Very unwise. Paul does not take sides. He says, you, you, figure it out. Let's let's get them together. And then and then you, faithful worker, help them. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's so true. And this is so crucial in peacemaking to remember that principle. I do not take sides. I need to understand this side, and I need to understand that side and because the truth is somewhere in the middle. Okay? In most cases. doesn't take sides. It aims high. Paul's peacemaking strategy aims high for restored unity. It doesn't mean that the, the particulars are not important. They are, to kind of you have to unpack some of that stuff, but it never loses sight of the ultimate vision. The peacemaker has to stay high, has to keep a high altitude, has to keep the big picture in view of Christ's redemptive purposes, what he's doing in the church, how this conflict is not the end all be all, and the need to get unified, whatever the cost. The peacemaker has to stay, aim high, like Paul does here. And again, moving forward, Peacemaker has to remind others of, well, in this case, what Paul does is he reminds others, these, these folks right here that are in conflict, of past unity. He's calling him. He's saying, remember, there, were, there used to be better days here. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. They, they used to be laboring together. They used to be laboring with the church leader, Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers. They can do this. It's an appeal to remember back to where we've fallen from. It's not always been this way. And then finally, it looks forward. Paul looks forward to future unity. In verse 3. It's an interesting little detail he puts in here. He says, whose names are in the book of life. And he's referring to everybody he just mentioned. He's talking about Yodia, Syntyche. He's talking about Clement, Paul, all the fellow workers. All these folks, their names are in the book of life. What's his point? Is that Christ has saved us all. We're all part of his people, and our names are in that book of life, which means on the final day when that book, those books are opened, we're going to inherit Eternal life, the new creation, because we're all we're all in that book. And so, the peacemaker, Paul's telling that to the peacemaker here to remember this, because in a conflict, we need to be able to paint the vision of future unity. We're gonna we we say it this way a lot in in in, at the church. You know, we're gonna we're gonna live forever together. It's gonna be a long time, so let's figure out how to get along, (laughs) because you're not getting rid of me. we're going to be together for a while. So I think that's kind of the idea here in this, this um, passage. So let's look real quick to end here. Some practical steps for peacemaking. Practical steps here. So again, none of you, or most, almost none of you, are church leaders. Okay? So how do we think through peacemaking kind of at the friendship level? Somebody comes to you. They've been hurt, and they're pouring their heart out to you. Is that fair? Is that where we're at? Yeah. Okay. Empathize, but don't participate in gossip. Okay. It's so pretty straightforward. Empathize, meaning understand their their plight, their difficulty, what's happened to them. I'm sure, it's been a challenge. I'm sure, that's hurtful. But don't. Participate in gossip, meaning don't, don't kind of join in with them and start tearing down that other person. And then, as they continue, you know, if this is something that seems like it's, it's a, a default response from this friend, you're going to want to begin to kind of press in to gently expose this hurt or offense, meaning, you know, they think they're just venting or whatever the term is that they want to use, but you're going to say, "Hey, it seems like you're it seems like you're hurt. It seems like you're offended. Are you offended? Okay, now I got to now I got to think about this, right? Have you have you taken an offense against this person? Just asking the question. It kind of starts to turn that corner, right? From just a vent session to like, hmm, gonna have to be responsible for what I'm saying here. My words. Whoop." And then you need to help them see if the offense has taken root or that it has, if it has. Meaning they've, they've begun to harbor this offense, and man, it just really, really seems like every time this person comes up, like you just don't really have anything good to say about them. Are you sure everything's all right here? I think it seems like this offense has taken root and that you're tempted to be bitter toward that person. And then just kind of ask them, like, kind of give them the options, right? Like, hey, biblically speaking, looks like you either need to overlook this offense and just forgive them in your heart and move forward without drawing any more attention to it, or you need to talk to them, you know? It's always helpful to give them the options, right? If you want to be faithful, here's your two options, you know? Option A, forgive and overlook, or option B, confront. Okay. Then encourage them to talk to the offender. If it's, if it's option two and they're saying I just can't, I just can't move past this, then you have got to encourage them to talk to the offender. Send them back to the one that's offended them to try to talk, and then and then remind them of everything we said earlier about what to do for your own sake. You know, get the log out of your eye and work on your all those things we talked about. But they need to go back to have a conversation with that person and then finally find a leader to help facilitate that reconciliation if it's necessary. So if if you're kind of a newer Christian or you're a younger believer, just know there's there's probably a lot of pitfalls there and it would probably be more helpful to have somebody who's a little bit further along to navigate that restoration if it's a, if if it's complex, right? If it's a if it's has become a Yodian, Syntyche kind of situation where there's a lot of complexities. Other people are involved. Bring in one of your leaders in the church to help facilitate that reconciliation. So, I know that was a kind of a, a lot of lists, but I wanted to give that to you in terms of application because I think that's we can take a lot of those things away from this passage here in, in Philippians and just know that as we're dealing with these, with these relational offenses amongst each other, that... We will shine brighter as a church. We're showing not that we're perfect, but that we can deal with with the sin in the church, that Christ is big enough, He's equipped us to forgive each other, love each other, and that is a, a wonderful place to be. It's full of joy, right? So that's why this letter is all about joy, because when we're when we're forgiving and moving forward, we're gonna be rejoicing as well. And so we just have to remember that even if it's a pinhole leak, we either need to cover it in love and move forward, or Begin to talk, talk, you know, open, open a conversation about that with with a fellow believer. So, if you have, if somebody comes to you out of this and they and you they have you have offended them, don't be don't be defensive, right? Just listen, seek to understand. Um, and again, because the goal is unity, relational unity, for the sake of the mission, right here in Lynchburg, at Liberty. You know, as we're talking to as we're talking to people at Liberty, um, and in the community, right? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful for just how clear you've been to us, and we need your help. We know that it's so easy, I know it's so easy to to not do all I can to live in unity and to strive to maintain that that unity. And so, Lord, please help us, um, help us to obey you here and to, to deal with offenses. And if folks need help, I pray they would seek that help. And that um, just as a result of tonight, that we would just be more faithful in our our relationships, uh, more loving to each other. And as a result, you would would continue to save people um, through our ministry and that we would see people built up in Christ as a result. And uh, we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.